from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University, this is Writer's Talk. I'm Doug Dangler. Today I'm visited by three new voices in Ohio writing. Carla Buckley is a former press secretary to a U.S. Senator and recently published her debut novel, The Things That Keep Us Here, a thriller about a Columbus family dealing with a pandemic. Sarah Gridley is an assistant professor of English at Case Western Reserve University and the author of two books of poetry, Weather Eye Open and Green is the Orator. Paula McLean teaches at John Carroll University. She has received fellowships from the Ohio Arts Council and the National Endowment for the Arts and recently published the memoir, Like Family, Growing Up in Other People's Houses, about being raised as a ward of the state of California. Welcome to Writer's Talk. Thank you. Well, you're all involved with the Thurber House's New Voices series. So, uh, and I encourage you to uh, attend that. Go out, go to the uh, Thurber House's New Voices. So tell me about the Thurber House New Voices series. How did you get involved in it? How did you become New Voices? <laughs> uh, really by invitation. Mm -hmm. And I was very delighted to participate. So that was, it was pretty simple. It was a very nice invitation and, mm -hmm. um, I was excited to come down and okay. learn more about Thurber, too. I think it's a lovely idea. So it's a literary picnic, and people are invited to, sort of, I think, sit and have some dinner and listen to authors they may not have heard before, which I think is a kind of a, uh, a kind of an easy um, way to, to hear literature instead of sort of in a hardback chair, you know. Yeah. Um, in a bookstore with people sort of trying to find the restrooms. So, <laughs> and it sounds like the format is pretty interactive too, so mm -hmm. that there's time for Q and A. And I actually enjoy that more than just a straight reading where you don't really have any interaction. Mm, it's more with, natural, isn't yeah, it? it? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. And uh, also that way you can find out the people who are reading your books and and badger those who aren't yet That's right. reading your <laughs> yes. books. And Badgering is always part of the. So, so, Carly, your novel takes place in Columbus during a pandemic, right? Yes, it does. What Columbus setting inspired you to think, I like this, but I'd like to see people dying around it? What, <laughs> um, how did that happen? Well, my neighbors, just kidding. We moved, um, I and my family moved to Columbus four years ago from Baltimore, and we didn't know anybody in the state. And at that time, the news was filled with warnings about um, H5N1, current flu strain in China going pandemic. And I knew enough about the 1918 great influenza mm. pandemic mm. to be worried. And so here I was in this city, and I didn't know anyone, and I began to worry about how I would protect my family if indeed the worst happened. Um, and one night I had a nightmare, and the next day I woke up and decided that that was going to be my next book. And indeed it was, and it was the first book I published after years of attempting to do so. And the reason I picked Columbus, although I'm, a, I'm fairly, I consider myself a newcomer, especially when I was writing the book, is because I consider Columbus, as do many corporations, for example, to be an average American city. And I wanted to have that flavor in my book. I wanted any reader in the US or elsewhere to be able to put themselves into the living room of the family mm -hmm. I chose to write about and imagine themselves there. Okay. So uh, tell me about going around the city and, and writing it. How much did you uh, create for the text or how much did you say, this happens at Easton? this happens at another landmark in Columbus. I really tried to strip out as many landmarks as I could to keep that universality that I was going for. 
Um, I do have a university in my book. Mm -hmm. I name it the university, but we all know it's OSU. Um, and I do have a couple street names that I threw in there just to ground the story and give it some, some bearings. Um, and I've enjoyed readers, local readers, coming up to me trying to guess mm -hmm. where exactly right. this um, Columbus suburb is, which of the Columbus suburbs it's, it takes place in. <laughs> and you said you knew about the, the 1800s pandemic. Uh, flu. Uh, is that something that was just, were you a history major that led you into that? Or how did, were you familiar with that? Because that was something actually that was a, it's, um, it swept through obviously the uh, whole U.S., but I'm familiar mm -hmm. with uh, different graveyards where I came from, mm -hmm. where there was a, like there'll be rows of people that all died right, at the same time. Right. Well, it? It, actually I was an art and English major, so um, didn't know anything. Mm -hmm. And I'm not a nonfiction reader, but 10 years ago, um, while I was visiting my in-laws in Minnesota, I picked up a book called The Flu by Gina Collada, and it's a non-fiction That's fascinating. account. Yeah, yeah it's, really it's, something. it's um, about the 1918 pandemic. And I was shocked to learn that such a huge event in the world's history had gone fairly unnoticed, at least by me and my generation. And there are survivors among us who, whom I knew, but never talked about it. And so that really led me to, 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 to know the depth of what a pandemic really could be. And, and um, coincidentally, as I was writing and researching this book, um, humankind be, or scientists began to gather to, to talk about the 1918 pandemic. A lot of books came out at the time, um, wonderful books that I was able to read. And, um, and they recently determined that the death toll from that pandemic was 20%. And the H5N1 strain that they're currently monitoring in China is, uh, has a death toll of 50%. Um, right, that's astounding. So um, it was trying to grapple with that. Of those that contract the disease, 50% of, of those. Of those who contract the disease, exactly. Mm -hmm. um, and because we have no immunity against it, we all can contract the disease. It's, mm -hmm. it's um, the H5N1 is particularly virulent. The H1N1 that recently went through the world um, and turned into a pandemic was milder, fortunately. Plus, it was harder for humans to contract. So um, we, it was lucky. It was a, yeah, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So you have to do a lot of that background before you write an, uh, a fiction novel. Um, and was that something that you spent a long time with or was a short time it was all based on that book? What, what was your writing process? As that? a non-scientist, and I'm quick to say so, uh, I did a lot of research and I interviewed some OSU scientists who are at the forefront of the um, transmission of avian flu from animal to human. And um, I, I acknowledged them in my acknowledgments. Um, and they really helped ground me, not only was I doing a lot of reading on viruses and the great pandemic, but I was actually in the labs with scientists seeing what, what they actually did on a day-by-day -day basis. And again, I was the kind of person who, who avoided taking science classes. Um, so I had a lot of work to do to come up to speed, but I've enjoyed that. And I think that's one of the benefits of choosing to write about science. Um, is that it, it allows me to explore something I'm not familiar with and get, gain an understanding of it. Okay. 
All right, and um, Sarah, you teach yes. poetry as I well do. as write it, and you have Green is the Orator uh -huh. is your newest book. Tell me about um, playing those roles off of each other as mm. a teacher of poetry, as also someone who writes it. Um, do your students lend a lot to your poetry, or do you keep those uh, avenues separate? How do you work through it, and how did you work through this book? It's, that's a very good question, and I, I mean, I think what this book proves to me is that um, it's a productive relationship, teaching and writing. Um, I might also say a productive tension, teaching and writing, um, because I did write this in its entirety while in the past four years that I've been teaching at Case. So um, sort of coming off of what you said about science and avoiding science classes, I was the same person. I was a very tunnel vision, uh, liberal arts, humanities sort of person. And Case is a wonderful atmosphere to broaden my horizons um, because you have engineers, um, pre-meds. I mean, it's a very science-dominated uh, school, um, yet with these very rich pockets of humanity studies. Um, so I really feel like my students have opened up these windows for me, particularly for me in areas of cog science, cognitive science, um, and where cognitive science begins to overlap with philosophy and phenomenology and um, just questions about perception, which are so critical to poetry, and the act of attention, which is so critical to poetry. And, you know, they're also a different generation. And it's fun to sort of finally feel myself feeling the separations of, of gen generations. I'm 42, and to, to sort of get to know these creatures who are in their tw young 20s and they're I really yes, who are, I mean they're different they're really different and I I really um, am stimulated by their um, these differences like I am not at all a Facebook person and never will be and I, I really am resisting that and to hear their sort of reasons why it's important to them and how they use that and it's just you know it, it's it's fun it's it's stimulating and I have to say too um, their their writing really stuns me sometimes and really makes me uh, want to go home and write. And uh, so it, it's a very productive relationship. So how do they respond to your poetry in class? Do you bring it in to talk to them about um, it? Or is that something that you want to keep, again, separate? I don't often bring it in because typically there's there's someone else's work on the table that we're mm -hmm. talking about, either the student's work or um, a, a poet that we have on the syllabus. I'm certainly open to talking about those questions. I did have a really fun midterm assignment where we did a collaborative poem. We had been talking about collaborative poetics, which is sort of something that's beginning to happen with greater and greater uh, frequency, and which also has really interesting historical roots with the surrealists, et cetera. So we read some poems from an anthology about collaborative work, and we decided we would create a poem via a Google Doc, um, and we broke down into groups, and then these various group productions became what we called The Beast, which was this 12-person um, <laughs> poem that then had open edits for a week. And I decided earlier on that I would participate, and that it was a little scary because in some ways, um, your ace in the hole as a teacher is being mysterious and, and sort of saying, mm -hmm. I'm published, I have authority, et cetera, et cetera. But then to actually sort of put your work out there for their edits, for their scrutiny, for their you know questions was really fun. And uh, so that was... So a how good. do you get in a 
in an environment like that, how do you decide what the final product is going to be? It's just the last person to make an edit? You just yeah. call it edit? So I, it, was a, it was a midnight kind of thing, and, and everyone knew, and there was this sort of weird uh, scramble because you can't get in when someone else is, so people can, but you also get bounced out. There's a time limit. So there was this sort of down to the last minute, and then the part I really enjoyed was actually the process note everyone had to write about the ex a sort of metacognitive um, piece on what was it like to do this. Some people said this was so much fun. I loved how letting, letting go of control was great. One other person started her um, process note by saying, as a child, I never liked to share my crayons. And this was like <laughs> having to share my crayons all over again, and I didn't like it one bit. So, you know, just the, the sort of boundary lines of authorship and, and creativity and how much, how sort of porous are you and open are you to mm -hmm. input and, and how much do you want to really sort of main, maintain control. Over. And how, so how did that affect you in the end? I loved since it. The well, since the students yeah. aren't here, did you did they, your crayons, yeah, did, they, right. did they cut out, did they leave out some of your favorite crayons? Uh, they broke my crayons, yeah, <laughs> they, they melted my crayons. No, it was, um, it, I was really pleased with it. And I think the older I get, the more interested I am in, this is sort of a cliche, but process rather than product. And, and to be able to sort of teach that, you know, as something that, um, people got some people got very attached to the product and it was in certain phases I thought a beautiful poem and you sort of want to say don't touch it stop mm -hmm. um, But it's sort of fun to see something be composed and decomposed and so mm -hmm. that's good. It reminds me of the old adage you're never uh, done with writing you run out of time. Yes. Yeah, so, right. Yeah, very... It's never finished, only abandoned. It's, it's, um, <laughs> right. I think Valerie says that about poems. Okay. Yeah. You're listening to Writer's Talk from the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University. My guests are Thurber House's New Voices, authors Paula McLean, Sarah Gridley, and Carla Buckley. You can learn more about them via the links at writerstalk.org. Writer's Talk is a co-production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing and The Ohio Channel, where you can watch videos of our interviews at www.ohiochannel.org. Now, back to my discussion with Paula McLean, Sarah Gridley, and Carla Buckley. Now, Paula, your memoir is about growing up as a ward of the state, and it also in foster care. In mm -hmm. foster care, mm -hmm. and it also involves your siblings' lives, and that's mm -hmm. a, a one of the common questions I have about memoir: are how do you know what's your story to write about, mm -hmm. and what's your siblings' story to write about? It so, comes up a lot when I teach nonfiction too, um, particularly I think. Um, questions of veracity too that were in the news with Oprah and, and James Fry and A Million Little Pieces and you know um, you know what's you know what's our responsibility to our audience to tell the truth and then there are sort of fuzzier lines like do we know what the truth is you know is what I remember um, can it be verified in any substantial way is what I remember what my sisters remember so um, the story is is uh, collective. Um, we were in, you know, uh, the system for 14, 15 years in the 70s and 80s in, the, in California, and we're in every placement together, which is very unusual, mm -hmm. by the way. Mm -hmm. It really is kind of an unusual experience, and, and I think probably, um, oh, save my life, I, although I, I suppose that's pretty... Um, 
uh, extreme to say because I had a sense of uh, continuity and stability and I knew they were there. Um, Why do you think you ended up all going through the, the system together? Together? Um, I think people felt sorry for us. I, I do. I mean, we had a, a caseworker, basically. So when one placement ended and um, in the first, so I was four, my mother um, sort of skipped town with a boyfriend. My father was in prison, was a sort of drug addicted. It was, it's all very made for TV movie kind of stuff. It is actually. Um, and we were bounced around with various relatives for a while and then kind of were sort of um, taken into our, our first foster home. So I was maybe nearly five at that point and we're there only for a few months and then we're in another placement for a few months and in another placement for a few months. So every time basically the burden was on our caseworker to find us a new place. And every time it was sort of like thrown out there as a kind of general threat. Well, if no one takes you all together, then you're going to the home. I never even knew sort of what that was. The orphanage, you know, which was this very Dickensian idea to me, you know, like the state home, the what would that look like? What would that feel like? You know, were people running, screaming through the halls or in straight jackets? Or I, I had no idea what to expect, but it seemed horrible to me mm. going to the home. And it, it never happened. But I think that that was the, she would, she, you know, we had our files and she had pictures of us, school pictures from second grade, third grade, fourth grade. I imagine that we looked pretty urchin-y, you know, like um, sad. And I think, I think people felt sorry for us and wanted to take us in all together and give us a chance because they didn't want us to go to the home either. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so what started you on the path to writing the book? Uh, how, what was your process to get to this? It happened at a cocktail party, actually. So I was in graduate school at the University of Michigan writing poetry. So, and I have two books of poetry. And um, standing at someone's kitchen at sort of two o'clock in the morning and telling stories and um, sort of just basically said that I had had this experience growing up in foster care. And at the time, memoir was very big. This is in the 90s, you know. And so I got that a lot. Oh, you should be writing a memoir. You should be writing a memoir. Well, I'd never written, a, a, you know, a prose sentence before. And I wrote these tiny, tight little poems, and it was a terrifying idea to me. But I, I still thought it was a good idea. And so when I finished graduate school, I began to write that book, which was um, difficult cult because I had never written a scene before, because I had never sort of written a plot before. So I would just start with a story. I would start with any story. The time when my father got out of prison and showed up in his cool car on the lawn of this foster home. Just that image. Just an image of him getting out of the car and standing under this tree. And I would write that. And I would print it out and turn it upside down in a drawer. And I would write the next scene. So when seven, eight, nine months later I had a draft, it was all very kind of PC. And some of it was in the third person. And some of it was in the second person. Some of it was in the present tense. Some of it was in the past tense. And it was like this quilt that I wasn't quite sure I had the ability to put together. Um, and that's the, that's the version that we sold, actually. That's the version that went to a publisher. And I was very grateful at that point to have some professional help. Why do you mm. think it was shifting person? Was that just moving? Do you think that was a move for you moving back from um, hmm. difficult scenes? Or why, why oh, shift person? That's an interesting question. Oh, that's actually really a pretty astute question. Not to get question. too like to get psychological too. on you, but it seems the third person is more remote. Yes, interesting. I did find that one thing when I was writing a difficult scene, an abuse scene, say, or something that I didn't feel like I it was too hot to touch. You know, I needed the oven mitts for it. 
I did have a tendency not just to get a little more remote in terms of vantage point, but to focus on sentences mm -hmm. and imagery and my language. Like this is, this is, I'm just writing to the end of this sentence and I really like this word, you know, so I wasn't actually in the moment sort of reliving it. You know, when, when I've done interviews I, or even readings, oftentimes I'm asked the question, did you find writing about this experience cathartic? Did you need to write about these painful memories in order to process them or work through them to get out on the other side, sort of like going to therapy as a kind of thing. And I think maybe that's why I did write it and something quite different happened, which is I actually now feel closer to my experience than I did before. You know, there was something about taking all of that in and working it through the machinery, you know, of my brain, uh, you know, my memory, my imagination, all of my skills kind of as a writer coming to bear on this story that I knew so well um, actually make me feel like I'm more comfortable talking about it. I'm more, I've been on the Today Show. I had to tell four million people mm. that, you know, um, and it feels like more a part of me than it did before. Okay. Mm -hmm. So you worked your way into it instead of your instead way of out. away from it. Yeah. Is your, when you're reading now for your, your pleasure reading, do you go to, to memoirists or do you go to poets since you've written this? Yeah, I do really like nonfiction, um, but not in the way I think, I get a little sometimes uncomfortable with the way the public has an appetite for sordid stories. Um, I also think that we like a happy ending. So we like, we like a triumph, you know, personal triumphs. We like people coming out on the other side of their sad story and, you know, um, having a good outcome. We all like that story, but sometimes that's not the way it happens. Fortunately, in my case, it is sort of. I, I do feel like I had a remarkable outcome when, say, 60% of people who come out on the other side of foster care end up incarcerated or with a teen pregnancy or, you know, or worse. Mm -hmm. So, um, but I do like, I just like to read a good story. It doesn't have, for me, it doesn't have to be a It's not happy bounded story. by genre. No. Okay. Yeah, I want to be swept away. Okay. How about, about you? Or are you too, uh, or do you read extensively within the genres that you've written, like fiction or poetry, or do you prefer something different when you're reading for pleasure? Well, I, as a child, started reading mysteries, and that was it. I was going to grow up and write Nancy Drew mysteries. And Which I think are still being written, actually. <laughs> yes, you know, now she's much hipper, and yes. everything I'm there if they're looking for someone, I'm available <laughs> to continue to, that. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, and it wasn't until my sister, who's also a writer, took me under her wing about, I'd say, five years ago and said, you know, there are other books out there besides mysteries and thrillers. You might want to give them a look. <laughs> and um, so I have broadened my reading. Um, and but you wrote a thriller. I did. Well, so. it, it's, it's a cross-genre novel. So while it has... <laughs> I've, I've had to become comfortable with that term. But so while it has... A thriller background in terms of the pandemic. It's really family drama in the sense that everything takes place in one family's home and it's really the dynamics of those family members, between those family members, um, that draw the reader from page to page, not uh, what's going on outside in the world um, as the pandemic rages. Um, but so, and I've done a lot of nonfiction reading in terms of preparing for my next novels. Mm -hmm. Okay.
Uh, poetry, nonfiction, um, fiction? I read primarily nonfiction, mm -hmm. honestly, um, though I think it's, for me, it's very much like musical taste. I wake up and I want to listen to this or classical or Bob Dylan or The Clash or, I mean, it, depending on the day, I want to read poetry I, or time of day, I want to read this, that or the other. So I tend to have a very bad habit of having five to ten books open at once. Why is that a bad habit? It sounds well, like you're guilty. Because there. you can sort of get a little, that you can lose the threads or they or things can get a little crazy in your head because you're you're either keeping plot lines or you're saying, now where did I read that? I know I just read that in something. Um, but it's also kind of rich because they start bouncing off of each other. Mm -hmm. um, I did, for a long time, I, I hate to say this, but I sort of turned away from contemporary fiction. I used to work in a bookstore and, and had the great benefit of being able to take new novels home as long as we didn't crack the spine or eat spaghetti over them. We could read the, the those French. Were the, those, those are the rules. Were the rules. No spaghetti. And so I read tons of contemporary fiction. And then I really took like a 10-year sort of read Thomas Hardy books over and over and over again, um, just sort of comfort food, rice pudding kind of stuff, and <laughs> but didn't read um, contemporary novels. And lately, my um, department chair invited me, she's a woman, invited me to be part of an all-women's book group that only reads books by women. And um, it's been great. I've really caught the bug again of, of you know, getting deep into a, a great novel and contemporary or just yeah, throughout most, the ages? Well, mostly contemporary, not not all. Um, but not necessarily like bestsellers. But stuff. not necessarily mm. bestsellers, and some nonfiction. And really, the only stipulation mm. is that they be by women. And that really, you know, you sort of think, well, that's not very limiting, but. It, it does, it's significant to, to read books continuously just by women and not, you know, say, oh, I want to read this new one by so-and-so. Oh, but that's um, a man, so no, mm -hmm. we're not going to read that, you know. Mm -hmm. It just kind of... Or you can have to read a lot of George Eliot where it's, you know, you think that the name yeah, is a guy just, and it's actually yeah. a, a woman. <laughs> a woman yeah. I'll pull that out since I called the, uh, the pandemic the 1800s. <laughs> <laughs> I was later on, oh, yeah, I was thinking 1918, right, I'm going to throw out a George Eliot joke. What's in the <laughs> short time that we have left? What's your best advice for an upcoming writer? Persevere. Mm. I think some people think it's about talent. I either am a writer or I'm not a writer, and there's going to be a sign from God, mm. you know, mm. like a Shazam. Like there's going to be a moment, and you're going to know, and then you'll be able to keep going. And I think there's no moment, and no one tells you. And even if they do, it doesn't matter, you know. <laughs> you have to either feel it. And it has to be um, personal and enough of a reason to keep going simply because you have a desire to do it and no one's going to sort of ask you to do it. Okay. I agree with that. And I would add to it that um, the, the Shazam moment that I did have was when I decided to write about something I felt personally engaged in. And maybe both of you as poets had already gotten to that point, but it took me a while to step out of the structure of writing mysteries to to move into a more personal territory. Mm. Um, so I think that that genuine voice that comes to you when you're writing about something from the heart is an important one for aspiring writers to pay attention to. Okay. Yeah, and live in doubt and pay attention. Um, live, and in in, live in doubt. Live in doubt. I mean, <laughs> I was thinking, Ohio. Well, I was thinking, yeah, live in doubt, Ohio. <laughs> okay. um, no, but there's the the Henry James. Um, what is it? We live in the dark. We do it. We. Can't, 
can, our doubt is our passion and our passion is our task, something like that. But this, this sense that you must be working in and through your doubts and your failures, Beckett says, fail, fail again, fail better. better. Um, you really have, that's not These just all very of, positive people that you're bringing <laughs> yeah. up here. I mean, it's, you know? it's, it's like you say, it's not as though you're going to have, you know, lucky things happen or, you know, you you have your good days and your bad days, but it's really just about It's not as if the lights come on and no. stay on and suddenly yeah. you know what you're meant to do. Yeah. I think okay. I don't think that happens. Well, well, that's great advice. So thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah. And um, I, I recommend the books. Green is the Order by Sarah Gridley. The Things That Keep Us Here by Carla Buckley. And Like Family by Paula McLean. For more from my guest, Thurber House's New Voices authors, Paula McLean, Sarah Gridley, and Carla Buckley, visit www.writerstalk.org. Writers Talk is a co-production of the Center for the Study and Teaching of Writing at The Ohio State University and The Ohio Channel. You can watch our interviews at www.ohiochannel.org or by checking your local television listings. Join me next time for another Thurber House guest, Craig McDonald, author of Print the Legend, a fictionalization of the aftermath of Ernest Hemingway's death. I've noticed in the book as you switch from character to character, academics come in for some abuse. Yes, they do. <laughs> yeah. And I'm, I'm curious about how, uh, what reaction you've gotten from academics, if that's just the character or if it seems to be something that, you know, there's the people who are interested in Hemingway for the writing, there's the mm -hmm. academic interest in the writing, there's the Hemingway industry. Yeah. Uh, how does that work for you in this book? Uh, so far, I haven't had any death threats from academics. Okay. Um, they just kill you in print. I had one really <laughs> strange review that seemed unusually personal. And other than that, now it, it's the characters and it's Hemingway's own attitude towards scholars. Scholars mm -hmm. courted him throughout their li his life, and uh, and Hemingway inflicted terrific abuse on them. Uh, one of the main Hemingway scholars actually committed suicide shortly after Hemingway's death. Hemingway was aware of the fact that he would talk about the long game and the the career that sort of extends beyond your own lifetime. And he kept all of his letters. He asked they be burned, but he kept copies of every single letter, probably knowing that ultimately they would see print and that that would mm -hmm. further his public prominence and career. Until then, this is Doug Dangler saying, keep writing. <laughs>